because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their, eye, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you uh, may, I may be dating myself and using the Princess Bride as an illustration, but some of you will be very familiar with it, and you don't have to have seen it to get the gist of this notion. When you get about three quarters, maybe even a little bit uh, further through the movie, uh, there's a moment at which the grandfather uh, acts as if he's going to stop reading the story and take a break, and the little boy, played by Fred Savage, protests because it looks like Buttercup is going to marry the evil prince. And it looks like Wesley is done for. And what is his protest? Uh, grandfather, the story can't end this way. It's all wrong. We have a tendency to think that we know how stories should end, especially our own. And what's uh, not a little bit surprising today is the, is the ending of Acts the way that Luke brings it to a close. So surprising, and in fact, from one perspective, very disappointing. So much, uh, in fact, that commentators and theologians have wrestled with centuries, for centuries, to try to understand why does the book of Acts end the way that it does. We've been asking all along, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? And as we close our consideration today of the book of Acts, we see that to be the people of God is to find joy in disappointing endings. How does that play out? Well, let's consider some of the endings before us, namely Luke's ending, the Jews' ending, and Paul's ending. So first, Luke's ending. Luke's ending to his great tome, right? Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. 
He intends it as a two-part work for this person that we know little about named Theophilus to be something of an apology, not so much as a, uh, as a defense or invitation for someone completely outside the faith to come into the faith, but more of an apology for someone who's kind of roughly within the boundaries of faith to move more fully in and to, to trust in Jesus. And as he begins to uh, bring to a close, you know, as we've been in the book of Acts, Luke has been developing a couple of different expectations as we've been going along. Uh, from a literary perspective, Luke has gone out of his way to establish two expectations that the reader has as Paul approaches Rome. The first expectation is that Paul is going to appear before Caesar and he will be vindicated. Right? Paul's been through five trials, and in each trial, Luke has gone out of his way to say that Paul was innocent and that the Romans found nothing to charge him with. Right? The only reason it keeps moving forward is because Paul has, in fact, appealed to Caesar. And so you have every expectation as Paul gets to Rome. Finally, he will appear before Caesar. This will be put to rest, and the Jews will be painted as being silly in Jerusalem for what they were trying to trump up against Paul. That's expectation number one. Expectation number two is that Paul has talked so much about how he can't wait to spend time, intimate time with the church in Rome and to be encouraged by them. In fact, he makes several uh, pointed remarks in his letter to the Romans, right, to the churches in Rome that precedes his arrival there, of how he wants to fellowship with them and how they'll be mutually encouraged. That's expectation number two. As you come in to the, you know, we're coming into the landing strip of the book of Acts, you think, okay, Paul's going to be vindicated before Caesar, and there's going to be sweet fellowship with the church in Rome, and we'll see where things go from that. The problem with the ending of Luke is you get neither of these things. Right? For all the time he spent kind of leading us in a certain direction, neither of them happened, which has led commentators to, to argue and suggest all kinds of different theories for the ending of the book of Acts. Did Luke die? And someone tacked on an ending. Did Luke intend a third volume? that we talk about Paul's trip to Spain and his martyrdom. We don't know. It's all hypothetical. It's all uh, guesswork. Uh, but people have uh, routinely found the ending of the book of Acts to be disappointing to the extent that there must be some explanation that it wasn't completed quite the way. Uh, there's no bow tied on the end of the book of Acts. Uh, we don't know what happens to Paul. Paul's left a prisoner. There's no fellowship described with the church. He's not vindicated before Caesar. He's left under house arrest, and we have no idea what happens after the two years that he spends in house arrest. Right? From, pretty much from any perspective, that's, that's an ending that's lacking uh, some serious qualities in what we would expect in any kind of ending that would either be good or bring us closure in the midst of the story. So uh, we don't necessarily know all the questions to all these answers and why it has occurred the way that it has, but I think there's far more intentionality in it than we tend to give it credit for, right? And that's what I hope to demonstrate this morning. So what did happen when Paul finally gets to Rome? This is what we're considering, and this is where Luke chooses to break off his account to Theophilus. Well, Paul arrives, and he's very quick to explain himself. He's only three days in Rome... And what does he do? He summons the Jewish leadership. And clearly what he's worried about is that word from the Jews in Jerusalem who are trying to prosecute him has arrived in Rome before he has, so that the Jews are already disposed against him 
And he's trying to see, to both feel things out, but also to give a defense for himself. So he gives, Luke offers an abbreviated version of the same defense Paul's been giving every time he, he arrives anywhere. He meets with the Jewish leadership. He says, listen, the, these charges aren't true. I'm actually a faithful Jew. I'm preaching the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And the Romans have actually decided time and again that there's nothing really to charge me with. And the, the Jews who have been gathered in Rome have a bit of a uh, funny response uh, to Paul uh, in which they say, yeah, uh, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know you, uh, and we don't know of any charges against you. And, uh, but this sect you're talking about, the sect of the Nazarenes, these Jews who have converted to follow Jesus as Messiah, this we know a whole lot about and nothing good. So this we'd like to hear a little bit more about. So they appoint a day. They set aside a day in which they'll invite more of the Jewish leadership to sit down with Paul. And it says from uh, morning to evening, the entire day, Paul leads a seminar in how to read the Old Testament scriptures in light of Christ and tries to persuade the Jewish leadership that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And as that day uh, winds down, right, how did the Jews respond. Well, we're, we're going to jump into the Jews ending, at least in terms of the book of Acts, right? But what I want you to see first, and just considering Luke's ending, is, this, is the disappointing nature, right? There's not the closure we would want, and there's not the vindication that we would want, right? If you're really, if you're reading along, you're, you're, you're rooting for Paul, right? Be vindicated before Caesar, let the church go forward in strength and power unhindered. Let's, uh, let's get these bad guys in Jerusalem, put to bed, and move forward. And you don't get any of that. And what I want, I hope that that begins to resonate with you in terms of the many disappointing endings that you experience. Right? In the same way that a child looks forward to their future and begins to orient their lives around their dreams, we're constantly thinking about where we would like to find ourselves and our friends and our families in the future. And therefore we organize, right, based on that reality that we want to see realized. And often that reality, what we desire, what we long for, what we're moving toward doesn't materialize. It just doesn't happen. And we find ourselves terribly disappointed. And from, from the perspective of the book of Luke Acts, which claims that Jesus is the cosmic king of the creation, he's been victorious over sin and death, has been risen from the dead. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, Jesus has vanished. Paul's in prison with no hope of release. And Rome is still on top. You, you have to wrestle at some level. And indeed, I mean, to, just to be sympathetic to the people in the midst of our story. Really? Is Jesus victorious? Where do I see that? This ending isn't exciting. And it gets even less exciting when we consider the Jews' response to Paul's teaching, saying, yes, the Messiah has come. Jesus has arrived. Well, Paul quotes Isaiah 6, which in its context was spoken against the fathers, the fathers of those gathered, right? The Jews in centuries previous who had rejected the message of the prophets, and so, too, the Jews gathered in Rome are rejecting the message of the prophet Jesus and the prophet Paul. What is the nature of their rejection? Just skim with me over how it's described from the words of Isaiah. They see but can't perceive. 
They have a dull heart. Their ears can barely hear. Their eyes have closed. And it says if they would just turn, right, God would heal them. But they will not turn, and therefore they sit in a place of sense deprivation where they can't see as they ought or hear as they ought, and, and they can't think as they ought, and ultimately they can't love as they ought. The word that we translate there that the heart is dull is really literally the heart is fat, which means that the heart has become so, um, so overfilled, right? And the walls of the muscle have become so thick that it doesn't function properly anymore. It carries the idea of a heart that has been filled with too many loves so that it can't have one proper love and follow that proper love. It's a heart that can't love, a mind that can't understand, a picture of too many loves, which Israel has had many loves. They have been uh, prosecuted by the prophets for centuries for being adulterers, for spreading their love out over many women. And this is the danger, of course, as well for us. But I'd like to reflect for a moment. What does it mean really to have a singular love? What does it mean for your heart to be totally captured by the person of Jesus? To wrestle with that question, we could consider uh, one, of, one of the great parables, which is the parable of the pearl of great price, which is found in Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Two simple verses to tell a remarkable parable. Now, when you think about the parable of the pearl of great price, do you get the paradoxical nature of the parable itself? Right? Are you really thinking about it? Think about it with me for a moment. You are a person of wealth but you find something of such great beauty that you are willing to sacrifice all of your wealth for that thing of great beauty and, and great, great value, right? This is the greatest pearl in the history of the world. It has great value. But when you sacrifice all of your wealth for that pearl of great value, what is the result? You're poor. Right? As long as you possess the pearl, you've sacrificed all of your wealth. To monetize the pearl means that you have to give away the pearl. As long as you hang on to the pearl, you're poor. Which means that the pearl must be valuable simply for its beauty itself because uh, in order to get any real value from it, you would have to actually give it up. So, according to Jesus' teaching, you are only rich according to the value that you place upon the pearl, right? according to the way that you understand how valuable it is just to possess the pearl, not to possess what the pearl can potentially buy for you or get what you desire. Right? And of course, Jesus and his kingdom is that pearl. And yet, as soon as we start to think more deeply about the parable, we realize our foolishness. Do we not? That for many of us, we think the pearl is ours without sacrifice. Everything is, uh, is, you know, the Reformed tradition has a beautiful emphasis on grace, and it can sometimes be such an emphasis on grace that that grace becomes cheap, and we think, yes, I have Jesus in the kingdom of God, and it requires no sacrifice. In which Jesus says, no, to really understand me 
and to understand my kingdom is to sacrifice everything and to give it up. Or on the other side, our foolishness takes the, the place that we think that the pearl is a line of credit. Well, if I have the pearl, it's worth so much that people will extend to me a line of credit and I can actually still get what I want. And so if I have Jesus and his kingdom, well, I can still pursue the things that I want. I don't really have to be uh, given to them because that value, that wealth can be spread around and expressed in ways that I desire wealth to be expressed rather than uh, the ways in which Jesus would desire wealth to be expressed. So what does it look like to really be like this man who sees the pearl of great value and sacrifices everything? What does it mean to have a singular love? If we're saying Israel has rejected the gospel right, because they've had too many loves and have not loved God and don't recognize him in the flesh, then what does it mean for you to really have a singular love of God and to value the kingdom as the pearl? You might consider a parable that goes something like this. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you know, if someone uh, asks you to carry their pack for a mile, carry it for two miles, right? Go the extra distance on their behalf. Now, one aside is we're the worst readers of the Sermon on the Mount ever in this sense. Um, not to be hyperbolic or to exaggerate, but we have a very uh, significant degree of, of uh, hardship reading the Sermon on the Mount because we don't get it. Right? So we read something like that. We say, oh, I'm supposed to go the extra mile and help somebody out once in a while, and then I've gone two miles. But you have to understand in the context, who's asking the Jews to carry their packs? It's the Romans who had that right and could command a Jew to carry their pack for them. And so what Jesus is actually saying is, you, you know, the people who are oppressing you, the people you hate the most, the people who, who have you under their thumb or the heel of their boot, they're the ones that I want you to go the extra distance for. Right? So if you really want to get a feel for the Sermon on the Mount, think of the person that you, bothers you the most. Who really you cannot stand. Drives you crazy. Your life would be better if they were cut off. And they ask you to do whatever. Come help them in the garage. Make a meal. Give them a ride somewhere. And you say, not only will I do that, I will do X in addition to that. Right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Now imagine, imagine a community in the first century who heard Jesus teaching and they went and they said, we, want to be, we love Jesus, we're going to follow him faithfully. And they started going around and offering Roman soldiers, hey, can I carry your pack for two miles? They want to be faithful to Jesus. They think they're loving Jesus. They pursue him, and so they make this offer, and, they're, and the Romans are like, okay, crazy Jews carrying our packs for two miles, but fine with me. I don't have to carry it. Jesus makes his way around teaching around the countryside, comes back to that community. What would he say to them? He'd say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or what he would say something like, you know, you've misunderstood my teaching. Really what I want you to do is carry it three miles. I think Jesus would probably say the latter. Why? Because the community has codified a rule by which to demonstrate their own righteousness and set a standard by which they can say to themselves, I'm acting in love. I've carried the pack two miles. I've done just what Jesus said, and I'm done. And that's not what, at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that love has no boundaries. 
Love has no sacrificial, sacrificial limit. Right? Love always goes the, at the extra mile. If we had time, we could certainly consider places like 1 Corinthians 13, right? And what would it look like, actually, you know, as you sought to apply this notion of love, this notion of actually having a singular love and valuing Jesus and his kingdom in a way that keeps you from making the error of Israel, and for you, those of you who consider yourself theologians, right, I try to offer, I try to throw something in every sermon that's a little bit tougher to chew on, right? And this is one good thing to chew on. If you ask the question of Romans, why does God, why does Israel not recognize Jesus as Messiah? The answer you get is that God has passed over them for a time, right, in favor of the Gentiles, and it's God's divine disposition to do so. Esau, have I hated? Jacob, have I loved? If you ask the exact same question of Luke X, what's the answer? The Jews have hardened their hearts. They've decided to remain dull of, of eyes, dull of ears, dull of mind, and not see the truth, and it's on them. Well, right, here's another example of how we have to hold things in a certain tension. You don't always get the same emphatic answer, right? And the best theologies right, hold these things in tension, and we exist in the midst of that tension that God is both sovereign and humanity is responsible. And what you should walk away from all that with is at least this, am I more blind than I think I am? Am I more deaf than I think I am? Is my heart given to a lot more loves than it should be? Or do I really understand the parable of the pearl of great price? Because Paul did. And now we consider Paul's ending. You know, it's a great mystery. And one of the things that annoys me greatly about Scripture and history in general is just so many, all the questions. What happened to Paul? He spends two years under house arrest. And then nothing. You know, just like Peter. What happened to Peter? He drops off the face of the earth. What's the story? Historically, some would assert that um, there's some evidence that there was a law in place in Rome that if your prosecutor didn't show up for two years, you would be released. Right? So remember that Paul is now in prison in Rome, and they're waiting for the Jews from Jerusalem to come and be the prosecuting attorneys before Caesar in his case. Did they ever send anybody? We don't know. Did they send somebody and they died in a shipwreck? We don't know. But apparently they never show up. And then if we go down this road, then perhaps Paul is just released by law at the end of two years. Historically, a few church fathers reference Paul's trip to Spain. Maybe, right? If, we, if they come at least a century later, which is a little bit hard that there's not a closer uh, historical claim. But Paul points out a number of times, particularly in his letter to the Romans, that he intends to go on to Spain and conduct his ministry there. And Spain was really considered the ends of the earth in, in this day and age. Right? So some would hold that Paul gets out, goes to Spain, comes back, and right in 64 AD, Nero burns Rome. Uh, well, Rome burns. It's disputed who actually lit uh, the fire, but some, some would hold that Nero did. But what we do know is after Rome burns for seven days, right, uh, Nero decides to pull a political stunt, and who does he blame? The Jews, right, in Rome, of which Christians are still a Jewish sect. So a, a massive persecution comes down uh, in 64 AD on uh, Jews and Jewish Christians in Rome. 
And many, many, many are put to death, right? And driven either into ghettos or into the Colosseum to be devoured, right, for the entertainment of the Romans. And mo most historians say that Peter and Paul both probably died during this season in Rome, after, uh, after Rome burned. We don't, we don't know his particular ending, but the ending that, uh, that Luke does give us here in Acts, you can see in verse 31. This is the last note you get on the Apostle Paul. Uh, in fact, I'll back up to 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. That's the end. So what makes the difference between Paul and the Jews? Well, you have to remember that at the beginning, of Acts, Acts starts out with a question. Jesus is raised from the dead. The disciples are gathered. And what do they ask him? They say, is it now? Is now the time that you're going to fulfill the kingdom of God? Is this, are we ready finally? This whole death and resurrection bit has been great, but we're really excited for Jerusalem to be established as the world capital and Rome to be our, under our thumb. And you go through the book of Acts in which the Christians suffer mightily, and you realize that the ending is, is not the ending that the Jews want. And it probably, almost assuredly, is not the ending that Paul wanted or expected, but that he submits himself to. That he's willing to be faithful and say, what does it mean to be faithful in the midst of this ending that is surprising to everyone, that I'm under house arrest and preaching the gospel only to those who will come and visit me? And Paul seeks to, uh, to be faithful in that. And how can he possibly do that? Well, look back to verse 20 as he's giving his account to uh, the Jewish leaders. He says, uh, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. What a crazy statement, right? The paradox, it is for my hope that I am in chains. What kind of hope do you want to cling to that results in you being in chains? This is, from, what, from a human perspective, this is such a bad ending. And from God's perspective, it is the very way that the gospel will go forward as those who understand that true life is found in, in dying, right? To recognize the pearl of great price is to find oneself faithfulness, even in the endings that we don't anticipate or expect for ourselves. And so my question to you this morning is we might be disappointed with the ending of Acts from one perspective, and you might be disappointed with the endings that are occurring in your life or find yourself in a place of, I just did not expect to be here. And this is not what I intended. Or even I have a hard time of why, understanding why God would intend this for me. Uh, remember the hope in the chains of Paul. And begin to think more deeply about your relationship to the endings that you would prescribe for yourself. Right. In one way, is we could use a simple story like the tortoise and the hare. Right? The tortoise who says, I know the ending... I win. I'm the fastest. And he goes to sleep. And the tortoise who says, I'm not sure of the ending. I just know I'm supposed to run. And I'm not going to stop until I cross the finish line. And as a result, of course, is victorious over the hare. Why? Because he didn't assume, he didn't rely upon, he didn't build his life upon a false ending. Instead, he was just committed to the course which is what Paul does 
because he believes that he has the pearl of great price even in the midst of his suffering. So what does this look like for you? I'll just help you think about it from five quick perspectives and and then you can chew on it. One is a a real life example. Um, In fact, this month in uh, Christianity Today, Francis Chan has a little piece on Acts. Francis Chan was a pretty, pretty big pastor uh, had a, a very large uh, megachurch on the West Coast, uh, built it from 30 people meeting in his household to a multi-million dollar ministry. And essentially one day he woke up and said, I'm not really sure we're accomplishing what we are called to accomplish. I'm not sure this is really the best way to go about things. The author of the article uh, summarizes, Chan, and Chan resigned, right? Just walked away. No, no we're not talking about any, any moral failure Uh, Well, this is what the author says. He wasn't burned out. There's no disqualifying moral failure. He'd simply grown convicted over his challenges in steering a large ministry in accordance with biblical values. In essence, Chan says, we got too big. We couldn't be faithful, and it was too hard to set the right priority. So he takes a year off. He travels through Africa and Southeast Asia, visiting churches and dialoguing with there. Comes back and restarts a church planning movement, right? which is comprised almost entirely of house churches that are led by bivocational people. Right? Now, there's somebody who said, right, any pastor, not any pastor, but the vast majority of pastors, what's their ending in their head and in their heart? I want to be the pastor of a megachurch, right? I want thousands of people to look and adore. I want a massive budget, right? And where does that lead, Right? I think Chan's decision in some ways is pretty impressive. He says, no, this isn't leading anywhere good. I'm done. I'm going to rethink it, right, in light of the gospel. And right, what would it actually mean to shepherd people to value the pearl of great price above all other pearls? Well, it's going to look like something a lot more humble than my previous ministry. There's one example. But this notion of you really loving, you know, you be, I, I hope that you are possessed by, by Paul's faithfulness. I am. Right, if I got to Rome and I didn't get vindicated before Caesar, right, and I didn't get to be loved on, and you are so great, Apostle Paul, right, where, where would we be without you? Preaching throughout the Mediterranean, writing all these great letters, you're theologian par excellence, yada, 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 right? If neither of those things happen, I think I'd be out, right? Jesus, I've been kicked around the Mediterranean world like a tin can. The shipwreck, the viper, we finally arrive here. You told me to go to Rome so I could proclaim you. I'm under house arrest, right? I can't leave. I'm chained to a guard. What, seriously? This is, this is what you've led me to? You know what? After those two years are over, how did Paul not make a beeline for the temple of Jupiter? Why, why not? What? Because he understands the pearl. And he's willing to sacrifice and be faithful in the midst of a disappointing ending and in an incredibly mundane way. And so what does it mean for you really to love in a ridiculous way, in a sacrificial way that gives evidence that you're being reoriented, your mind is being opened, your eyes are beginning to see, your ears are beginning to hear, and you understand that if, if, if God is true in Christ, if this is really the incarnation, 
right? And he would wash the feet of the disciples and hang on the cross. And then Paul, as the ambassador, as the example par excellence of what it means then to follow Jesus faithfully, and both Paul calls me to imitate him and Jesus calls me to imitate him and Paul calls me to imitate Christ, then my life has to tell that story. It has to be a picture of that. Boys Boys and girls, it starts by sacrificing and being willing to love. Can you imagine opening a toy that you had looked forward to getting on your, your birthday? And then you see your sibling look at that toy. And you see how badly they want to play with it. Can you imagine letting them play with it first? Or a friend who spends too much time throwing you under the bus. Right, will you decide to forgive and to love in the midst of that frustration? Or a spouse you ask, hey, can I have a 10-minute back rub? And in your heart, you go, are you serious? Are you kidding me? You should be giving me a four-hour back rub. Right? But you say, yeah. No, you know what? It's going to be a 30-minute back rub. Right? Because I love you. And I'm going to get over thinking of myself as so significant and essential and start to simply operate out of that love. Or a parent right, who takes the hatred of their child it says, I, I will take your hatred and I will love you and forgive you and I will do it with the hope that it heals your heart. Right? Isn't this what we see in Paul? Suffering and speaking truth because he's discovered the pearl of great price. Have you? Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know that any of us really know what it means to be so in love with you and so singularly focused upon you that we would sacrifice everything uh, to possess you in your kingdom. We would prefer to possess you and your kingdom and our kingdom. And we mix it together and it makes us terribly frustrated. And it steals our hope and it steals our joy uh, because we are so deaf, dumb, and blind. Would you please meet us at the table this morning and open our eyes and unclog our ears and make our hearts repent of the ways that they have loved too many things too recklessly? Would you direct our affections to you? And in so doing, know that your love is so much greater and more encompassing that all things uh, indeed become rubbish. They become dim in the wake of it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.